This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Bennett. Today's episode is all about managing public relations in an infrastructure project. I'll tell you, you never know when you're going to need to know what you are about to hear. And we have a great guest to guide us through this process. Ooh, who is it? You'll find out in just a minute. Today's episode is brought to you by our very special sponsor, Pendulum Land Services. That's right. Pendulum Land Services is a small, women-owned, DBE-certified, full-service right-of-way firm. And Pendulum Land Services has been a supporter of this podcast since the beginning. They sure have. Thank you, Pendulum Land Services. Thank you, Pendulum Land Services, and find them at PendulumLand.com. That's PendulumLand.com. All right, so here's what we're talking about today. Have you ever been on a project and you hear words like, oh, this is a hot one. This is a hot project. Yeah, actually I have a project where there's particular media scrutiny. All eyes on the project. All eyes on the project. And sometimes politicians get involved, people involved in the community form alliances against the project. And then the media gets involved and that's a game changer. That is a killer, isn't it? Yeah. And when you get on a project and you hear those words like, there's a lot of heat on this one. What do you do? What do you, what am I supposed to do differently? Well, we're going to find out what you're supposed to do and the best practices in handling that. We have with us today a very special guest on Infrastructure Junkies. Does he know stuff about this kind of thing? He knows stuff about this kind of thing. And I think you know that he's an old and dear friend of yours, Kristen. Okay. That's true. Brian Dascom is the communications manager for the Association of Washington Cities and the editor of City Vision magazine. He has 13 years of experience in local government communications, including several years representing a municipally owned electric utility. Now, listeners, what you don't know is that Kristen Bennett and Brian Dascom have quite a colorful history together. Colorful? Hmm. I guess if you consider staring down the barrel of a gun to be colorful... Yeah. Brian, welcome to Infrastructure Junkies. Thank you, Dave. I'm so excited to be here. We are so excited to have you. Now, Brian, I understand that back in the day, either you or Kristen attempted to murder the other one? That's right. That's accurate. That is accurate. That's that's entirely accurate. Brian, would you like to tell our listeners what happened or shall I? Uh, Kristen, it sounds like you're maybe anxious to tell the story, oh, so please I go am. ahead. I am. Okay. Here's what happened. Brian and I were on a project. We were in a house doing an inspection and I went into the kitchen. Brian opened a cabinet and from the cabinet, he pulled a handgun and he got a crazed look in his eye what? and he started waving it about wildly. I think he pointed it at my head. Did he plant the handgun I in the cabinet? I, I don't know. Brian. I don't think we would have had you on the show if we knew that. What? Yeah. I'm not sure I would have come on if I knew that these kind of uh, fabrications would have been created, Kristen, because fabric- that is. <laughs> do you have a different version of events, sir? I do. I do have almost the opposite of events, you know, story of, of how this unfolded, Kristen. Am I, can I have a minute to tell my side? The floor is yours. Thank you. 
So you were right in the beginning there that you and I were in, in a house that had been redesigned and, and uh, refurbished for a relocation. And we had, you and I had been entertaining news crews. So ABC, NBC, Fox were there to, to look at this house that we'd renovated. And after they left, the house was empty except for you and me. And then I saw you walk over to a cabinet, open it and pull a pistol out, <laughs> which was surprising to say the least. And it's amazing how fickle memory is that I think both of us are sincere in thinking it was the other one that pulled the gun out. If I could shed a little light by backing up and saying how we got into this situation in the first place, is that, is I that okay? I think that's appropriate at this point, yes. Okay, so how did we get in the situation where Kristen or I were pulling a gun on each other? So I remember I was in a training, and it was a, it was a training by this guy named Hans Bleicher. He was a genius when it comes to kind of PR and relocation. So I may even mention him again later. But um, I was in this training, and I got an email from a guy, and it said, Brian, I got your notification that there were going to be these public meetings on this substation project. And I could, for health reasons, I couldn't make it, but I'm just, I'm writing to find out if you took, if you're going to take my property for this project. And I really hope you don't because I really like the house that I live in. Uh, by the way, I am disabled and confined to a wheelchair. And uh, so this place that I live is, is important to me and it, it helps me do what I need to do. So, you know, when I read this, I was obviously concerned for him and wanted to respond quickly. And so I did, I, I said, there's three things that you need to know. I looked up his address and I said, the first thing you need to know is, yes, you are going to have to relocate. You are going to have to move. This project is going on your property. The second thing you need to know is that you're going to get some help. We've copying Kristen Bennett on here. She knows about relocation and she's going to talk to you about your relocation benefits. And the third thing that you should know is that it's not happening quickly. So there's going to be some time. You're going to be able to take the time to make the right decision and, and we're going to help you out with that. So Kristen, I, you, you probably remember the meetings that followed that where we said, we all want to do our jobs in a very professional way, in a very honest and ethical way. Nevertheless, I think all of us, when we know that someone's watching, we take special care as we do our work. And that was the case here. We, we said, do everything on this project as though what you do is going to end up on the front page of the paper. So that's kind of how we conducted ourselves. So I remember, Kristen, you went out and looked at the numbers and said, okay, for this guy, for us to relocate him, we're going to have to find a place for him that's adequate for his needs. And that means widened doorways. That means lowered countertops, a roll-in shower. And there were a number of accommodations that we needed to make for him. And when we looked at the total cost of that relocation, it was like, man, you know, to put him in an apartment, someone would have to retrofit back to its original condition after he left. We're at a cost where we could almost possibly buy a house for this guy. So to make a, a long and in some ways a really interesting story short, we went from having him live in a 700-something square foot house that he rented to a 1,200-square-foot house that he owned that, as far as I'm, I'm aware, he, he still lives in to this day. So it was the process of retrofitting that house and getting it ready for him that he was excited about and uh, got a lot of media attention. But it did, uh, <laughs> it did cause the occasion for Kristen and I to be in this house where I think the previous owner had just left this little, it was just a little air pistol that uh, they had left in. That's in the, much less dramatic, Brian. It is a little <laughs> less dramatic. I'll tell you. So I'm, this was happening in the North Texas area. I'm now in the state of Washington. And when I told my current coworkers about this story, they said, this is exactly what we thought of Texas in the first place. There's a, <laughs> there's a truck in every garage and a gun in every cabinet. It's exactly what we thought. Pretty much. Well, Brian, I have to say that was one of my favorite projects ever. And that may be a whole episode someday. What happened with that particular individual who went from living in a place that really wasn't safe or accessible to him as a renter, and I believe on Section 8 housing, to 
a homeowner yeah. in, a, in a home that was fully accessible to him. But also that was the first project that I think I was ever involved in that had quite that much heat on it and that many eyes on it and that much media involvement. That was the first time I was misquoted in the newspaper. So yeah, that, that was quite the experience. So is this how you got into public relations? Was that project with that you and Kristen were on? Because I have to tell you, your story is very refreshing, how forthright you were with that gentleman, letting him know it was going to take a long time, that it was going to be very, very disruptive and probably stressful for him. Yeah, so I'd been working at the city there in North Texas for, I don't know, about eight years at that point. So I'd had a little bit of experience with some of these infrastructure projects at that point. Well, my feeling on this type of thing is... From the condemning authority side, which is where I always sit, it seems that agency is all too frequently just focused on the project and not focused on some of the ramifications of the project. And at least in my experience, the other side always seems to be ahead of the curve in the PR arena, and we are always in reactive phase. Yeah, I think that goes along with the the experiences I've had as well. Yeah, so we're always playing catch-up. And That leads me to believe that public relations in an infrastructure project is incredibly undervalued and extremely important. Well, I certainly certainly agree with that, Dave. But I also understand the other perspective. You know, if you're uh, an agency that's putting together some infrastructure projects, you're the expert. You've got the executives, the real estate professionals, the engineers especially that understand how infrastructure works. They know that you need the infrastructure. And so it does seem like a drag to say, why would we involve the public in this? The public doesn't understand what we understand about these projects. And so it does kind of raise the question of what's the point of involving the public in kind of in the first place. Do you think that this is something which should be foreseen by the agency? Are there certain projects where you should be able to see around the bend and realize you might run into a buzzsaw? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I I think there are some short-term and some long-term ramifications of ignoring public relations on an infrastructure project. So in the short term, there's a project that's going to be controversial, then the public has the opportunity to get really involved in the process in terms of all these authorizing agencies that you have to go through. So if that's at the city level, the county level, an environmental agency or something like that, they can go in and just through working the process, they can kind of help you fail to get the permits that you need and really crash the project, I think. So in the short term, you can have that problem. In the long term, If you lose credibility with the public, you know, those permitting agencies are made up of members of the public, ultimately. So if you've lost their respect, then someday I think it's going to come back to bite you. You know, you talked about anticipating projects that are going to be controversial. I think if you're paying attention, you can be pretty good at anticipating the ones that are going to be controversial. But that's not always the case. So So in some ways, it's helpful to go through that public process with every project and scare out that latent public opposition early. You don't want to find out that that public opposition exists at a city council meeting, at a permitting agency meeting, at a public hearing. You'd love to find that out at a meeting that you set up so you can deal with it while there's still time to do so. But how do you identify that? The example that we started this episode with, you worked it out with that guy. How do you know whether he's going to somebody else or calling a newspaper reporter? Or how do you flesh out the people who are just expressing frustration versus those that might be mobilizing forces against your project? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I think, like I say, it's helpful to have a, a process in place so that for every project that you're doing, and, you know, generally your project is either going to be one site, a dot, right? You're buying one if it's an acre, piece of property or whatever, or it's linear, you're building a road, you're building power lines, something like that. But either way, 
to look at the map and say, who's going to be directly affected by this in terms of distance? So you use a, a buffer of say 300 feet, 500 feet and say, I'm going to notify everyone that's going to be in the vicinity of this project and invite them to come out, invite them to a meeting, invite them to submit information online, whatever it is. But yeah, you just kind of go out in, in front of it and say anybody who's going to be in proximity to this. Now, there's always the chance that there's somebody across town who's going to be opposed to it because it's their area of interest or something like that. And that might not always be as easy to scare out early, but at least by notifying those people that are going to be directly affected, those permitting agencies and the cities and counties will see that the people that are most directly impacted have been contacted and have been brought into the process early. Well, if you're, if you're on the front end of a project where you're, I don't know, maybe running title, having some meetings, uh, public meetings, what approach do you take? Do you take more of a macro approach or a micro approach to public relations? In other words, is your message, hey, infrastructure development is great for everybody. It's great for the economy. It keeps us from sitting in traffic. It keeps water fresh and clean and, and coming to our taps. Or do you take a micro view as in this project or this portion of this project will benefit you, Mr. Landowner, or other people or what? I, I think you've uncovered a tendency that all of us have to talk about the good things, to talk about the benefits of the project that we're working on. But I would want to question that concept in whole. When it comes down to it, the Agencies that are developing infrastructure don't love infrastructure. They don't love power lines. They don't love sewer lines. They don't love roads. There's a problem that they're trying to solve. There's a problem of insufficient utilities. There's a problem of congestion and, and slow moving traffic that they're trying to solve. And so what I would say is you want to be upfront about the negative aspects of your project and about the problem that you're trying to solve. So as much as possible, you want to bring those residents onto the same side of the table that you are. You want to point to the problem with them, right? And if there's a legitimate problem to solve, here's the problem that we're looking at. Do you agree this is a problem? And they're almost always going to say, yeah, that's an issue. And so now it just becomes a question of how do we best want to solve it? And to, to kind of bring them into that discussion is, I think, the way to do it. I'm not an attorney, Dave, but you are. My understanding is that attorneys often have this concept of, I want to get my bad news out first. And I think that's what you want to do here. You want to be upfront about this is going to be difficult. It's going to be costly. It's going to cause some disruption to your commute or to your backyard or whatever it is. And just be real upfront about those negative aspects. Your job isn't to go in there and gloss over the fact that they're going to lose their half of their backyard or have to move. You're going to kind of empathize with them on that a little bit. It sounds Absolutely. Like. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely. Does it make a difference if the other side already has an attorney involved? And I already have my preconceived notions on this answer. Yeah, Dave, I'm very interested to sort of hear your answer. And maybe can you tell me in what capacity attorneys are usually representing the other side on this in your experience? They're representing the landowner for maximization of just compensation. And sometimes we've seen that bleed into the attorneys trying to get involved in relocation or trying to stop the project or disrupt the project. And, and I'm being cynical, okay, but I've also got a lot of experience in this. They know that there are deadlines involved in every project, and they know that there are sometimes delayed damages at work. And so they will use PR. They will use anything at their disposal to marshal opposition against the project in order to slow it 
and put the agency in a bind. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And so I guess I would, my, my answer to the question is, is no, it doesn't really change how I'm interacting with the public. Ultimately, what I'm hoping to do for an agency that I'm representing is to get them the approvals that they need to answer questions from the public, hopefully in a way that's, that's not in the, the high pressure situation of a public hearing or something like that, but to get the answers that people need. And then ultimately, the real estate costs associated with the project are maybe things that I'm not too concerned about. So I'll leave that to you and Kristen when it comes to <laughs> final costs. Okay, that's very interesting. So here's another question for you. Are there certain projects that are less popular and more difficult to deal with than others, like roads versus pipelines versus substations, transmission lines, sanitary sewer lines? Is there one that's always going to be a little hotter because of the nature of the project? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have hard data on that. and I don't want to pretend like I've got experience on all those projects. Most of mine has been with electric projects, but I'll say this, that there's a couple of things that you could think about or kind of filter you could run it through. One is people don't like projects that impact them directly. So if it's something where you've got to take out this person's garden that they've been working on for 30 years and uh, to put in some buried distribution lines or something like that, they're not going to be happy about that. So direct impact matters. People don't like a project when it has no discernible benefit to them. If you're going to do something that disrupts my day and the benefits are really conceptual, building this pipeline that's going to move a commodity that you don't use to some other neighborhood. It's hard to see why that's something that I'm going to like. Certainly when there's projects that interest groups would be involved in. And so natural gas is a big one on this. There's some interest groups that are in place that just are going to oppose that project. So you know that you're going to get opposition oftentimes to certain projects that have those interest groups. And then a last one that I'll mention that I think is very, to me, it's just very interesting in how it interacts with human psychology is that if it poses risks to people or if it poses a perceived risk, one question that you'll get from the public a lot of times, a really honest question is, you're building this thing, you're building, let's say that you're building this natural gas line. Is this safe? Right? Is this going to be safe? That's a fair question. It's not there now and you're going to put it in. Is it safe? So anybody that's listening to this conversation right now, I would ask them, is what you're doing safe? If you're driving, if you're going on a walk, if you're preparing dinner, whatever it is, is it safe? And the answer is no, there's some risk involved, right? There's always right. some acceptable level of risk. And that's not the answer that people want to hear. If you say, we're putting this piece of infrastructure in, the answer is always, there's an acceptable level of risk. That's not a very good answer. So that's a whole topic on its own, but uh, risk and safety come into that question. Well, I have a theory on some of this stuff, and okay. I want to see if it matches your experience. And it's this. Let's set aside pipelines and transmission lines for the moment, because you've already identified if it's not directly benefiting the impacted landowners, they're not going to like it. And that's understandable. I get that. But let's talk about transportation. Under the lens of transportation, my experience is that people in larger, more populous jurisdictions are far more tolerant of transportation projects than those in smaller jurisdictions. And I think it's because these people in a larger city have to sit in traffic all the time and they don't like doing that. And so they're thinking, hey, this project is going to make my commute shorter. Or they realize the inherent benefits of adding uh, another exit ramp or widening an interstate or a highway as opposed to taking an extra five feet off of Uncle Elmer's corn patch or something like that. <laughs> Why you got to pick on Uncle Elmer? I don't know. I like your theory, Dave. I don't have any way to assess if it's true or not. 
but I'll join the team. I think that's a good explanation of that phenomenon. I've just found that I'd, I'd much rather try an eminent domain case on behalf of the Department of Transportation in the city of Virginia Beach than, say, in a smaller county somewhere where they're, they're going to be much less forgiving. Yeah. That is interesting. Hey, Kristen. I want to again thank our long-standing sponsor, Pendulum Land Services, whose support has made so many episodes of Infrastructure Junkies possible. Yes, thank you, Pendulum Land Services. PLS, which is a small, women-owned, DBE-certified company, has seen and managed many situations on a project much like those being discussed today. PLS has principals on staff who have been on the scene for the hot projects. They successfully navigated inquiries from print and broadcast media and assisted their clients in doing the same. What's more, they have managed displacements of landowners with special circumstances, whether a church, mortuary, or the like. If you need a team with experience on the hot projects, call Pendulum Land Services. They can be reached at PendulumLand.com. That's PendulumLand.com. Hey, Brian. Yes. You want to play a little game? Let's do it. All right. Here on Infrastructure Junkies, we play a game called Over Under Push. Okay? And here's how it works. I'm going to give you a topic and three items having to do with that topic, and then you're going to tell me for each one, is it overrated? Is it underrated or it's just adequately rated? It's a push. Okay. I've got a clarifying question. Okay, please. Do you want to hear my defense of my decision or just deliver my response? I would like to hear your defense. All right. But also there are right and wrong answers and the determination (laughs) is made by me and only me. Dave sometimes likes to chime in, but this is my game. So I get the final say. Okay. All right. Buckle up. This first over-under push has to do with 90s music. Brian, I think you and I are in the same generation, close to the same age. We probably grew up with some of the same music. So Yeah, like we were like in high school in the 90s. We were in high school in the 90s. That's right. And I, Dave, I'm gonna, if I could mute you, I would, because you're going to disagree with me. But I think the 90s was the greatest decade of music, even better than the 60s. Don't mute me. Don't make any sounds. It, I think I'm right. It was revolutionary, and not just for one genre, for all genres. No, 90s music is the most forgettable decade of my life. Excuse me. This is my game. Full stop. Full stop. Would you mute yourself? Thank you. Okay, Brian, back to the game. Over, under, push. Here we go. I'm going to tell you the three things that you're going to be telling me if they're overrated, underrated, or it's a push, and then we'll go one by one, and you'll tell me your answer, okay? 90s music. All right. Number one, they might be giants. Number two... Pearl Jam, and number three, the Indigo Girls. Oh, wow. Okay. This is great range. I love Yes, I we, love we like a good range here. here. All right, so let's go back to number one. They might be giants. What say ye? So obviously, there is, you're right, there's a right answer. They are underrated. A buddy of mine had the album Flood, and this CD made it into our car and into our stereo system, and we listened to a lot in high school. And I've recently pulled it out again for my kids, and they can see the brilliance of it. And they love the Birdhouse and Your Soul song, and we, we sing it. They've learned most of the lyrics. I love that song so much. And any of, anybody that listened to our Infrastructure Junkies Roundtable Part 1, we shared our Spotify playlist for those of us on the show. And that is one that I had on my playlist, and I took it off because I had way too many songs. But Ross Green has it on his playlist. It is, it's the, like the most charming, wonderful song ever. I love it. They Might Be Giants had this great pre-internet deal where you could call a certain phone number, 
And it was, there was like a, what do you even call it? A, a recorder. I forget what you're supposed to call it when, you, anyway, there's like a voice message deal where they would try out songs. They'd have a demo of a song. And so you call this number and you can hear it. They might be Giants demo. And then you can leave your comments what? On, on the recorder. It's like they, they figured out it was like a blog before the internet existed. Brilliant. That is amazing. And because of that and all the other reasons, you are correct. They might be Giants is in fact underrated. Dave is still on mute. Okay, number two. Are you ready? Pearl yes. Jam. What say ye? <sighs> okay. It's not going to be great, Kristen. You're not going to be happy with me. Oh, boy. Careful. I think the whole grunge revolution was necessary because it needed to take down 80s hair metal. Okay. But. Uh-oh. There's a but? I. I want to say that what's really underrated is like Eddie Vedder's more solo stuff, like the soundtrack he did for that Into the Wild movie. So that was great, but I didn't get it when I was in high school and I've never come back to it. So I want to say underrated, but I know that. I'll tell you what, Brian, we're just about out of time and this interview's (laughs) over. Bye. Just kidding, Brian. Okay. What were you saying? So you're, you want to say underrated, but you're not going to? I like to get a good grade, so I'm going to say they're underrated. Okay, if you're trying... <laughs> okay, we yeah. can continue the interview yep. now. Yep. Oh, suddenly. Oh, you know what? Okay. Glad we didn't hang Guess up. Guess what? You're right. Glad we didn't really hang up on you. Okay, number three. The Indigo Girls. Oh, this one's tricky for me as well. So I like this. I like that it represents the whole Lilith Fair genre of the 90s music, which I can't even pretend. So I loved that stuff. I loved that stuff when I was in high school. Indigo Girls, Ani DeFranco, Jewel, all of that, right? I think, again, when I come back to those musicians now, I I, I loved the Indigo Girls. I really appreciated them. They're a push for me. They're appropriately rated. Okay. I think is what I, I've just remembered that I have that option. You do have that option. And you know what, Brian, I don't think that you're incorrect. I think they are a push because I think they are celebrated and they kind of stand on their own. They're like, who, like you don't go, Oh, the Indigo girls and blank. There's only the Indigo girls. And I can tell you, like you can put Galileo on the radio. And I feel like a 17 year old driving around in West Texas. I, I love the Indigo girls, but I think you're right. They are. I think they are revered and loved. They are beloved. So I think push is great. You know what? I didn't expect this. He was going down a trail I didn't like on Pearl Jam. I think he's three for three. What do you think? Perfect score. Not bad. I don't care what you think, actually. It's my game. So, yes, Uh, Brian, perfect score. Way to go. If I can add one addendum, you know who really holds up is 10,000 Maniacs. I came back and listened to them recently. Yes. You know what? I haven't listened to that in a long time. You have inspired me. I think I'll be listening to some of that this evening. Agreed. Well done, Brian Dascom. Thank you. All right, back to the show. The, back to the, the easy <laughs> question. The stuff you actually know something about. <laughs> watch it. Watch it. Kidding. Kidding, Brian. Don't hang up. Don't hang up. Yeah, he's going to hang up on us now. All right, here's the next question that I have, and I've got a lot of personal experience with this. When you get into the guts of a project, and it may or may not be a really controversial project, but most large projects have eyes on them, right? Are there certain landowners who are more sympathetic or pose an inherently larger problem if they oppose the project, or are there some that are easier 
to address. I mean, sure, I don't mind putting a pawn shop out of business or a tattoo parlor or a place to check your cash or cash your checks, but are there some that pose particular problems for us? Yeah, I think so. And, and in a lot of ways, I think that's why you would have somebody like me in, involved in a project. Is It's all humans around the table, but there should be at least somebody, if not everybody, kind of thinking from that perspective of if I was reading this in the news, what would bother me? If I was sitting on a city council and this and this case came before me, what would I think of it? And so I think it's important to have somebody who's thinking who's thinking that way. And, and so in that way, it's all of the ones that you would imagine, Dave, or the ones that are that people are more sympathetic with. But one way to think through it, one kind of like filter to think through is we remember from whatever it is, high school, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So if somebody's saying, this is going to keep me from making a living, this is going to destroy the only place that I have to live or something like that, that's a more sympathetic case. And if somebody's saying perhaps something further up the, the hierarchy of needs, if somebody's saying, I've got uh, 13 rental properties and this is my third favorite one. And so if you take it away, I'm going to lose this percentage (laughs) of my income. Now that person, that landowner, that property owner deserves justice like anybody else. Sure. And so that's important. They're not less important, but they are less sympathetic, I think. Let's drill down because I'm, let's talk about one of my favorite topics is when churches are impacted properties in a right away project. I will preface this by saying they can be a bear to deal with, and they can be just as hard-nosed as anybody. Yeah. So I've had a little bit of experience with this. That story that we were telling here at the beginning of the show, there was a, a church that was being considered as a property to take as well that we didn't end up taking, but I had a lot of trouble getting a hold of them. And then finally, one Sunday morning, I just had to put on you know some nice pants and go to church and find the pastor and talk to him. And he was super easy to deal with. He was really kind of zen about it. He was like, hey, if this is the decision to make, then that's what God has decided to do and I'll follow along. And so that was kind of my only experience dealing with the church and it was exceedingly easy. But David, it sounds like you've had more difficult situations. Oh yeah. And the larger the congregation, the bigger the headache it can be. We had a case that involved a church with a more than 5,000 members of the congregation, Wow! most of whom were landowners in the jurisdiction where we were going to try the case, and they were all over the media all the time. And they took some creative positions, and they were very difficult to deal with in that respect. And we had to be very careful. You just, I just think there are some landowners or certain types of properties where I think you have to be very careful. Another example is we displaced a mortuary a number of years ago, and, and they just they decided they weren't going to leave. We owned their property. We took it via quick take, and they wouldn't get off. And, and so the client's calling and saying, what do we do? And I said, well, you can lock the front door. You can park a bulldozer in front oh of boy. it, but there's corpses in there. We're not going to turn the electricity off. Oh, gosh. What a well, nightmare. That's that's not okay, Mr. PR guy. Okay, what do we do here? (laughs) Yeah, I'll say this. It it does point out when you talk about a a church or a funeral home. And I remember once dealing with a on a transmission line project, there was a, a daycare. They weren't bad. They were pretty easy to deal with. But I was for sure looking forward with some anticipation and concern about all the parents who if they drop their kid off every day on the way to work and I'm telling them because of this power line project, they've got to redo that that whole process. That's, that's going to be trouble. Ultimately, the only thing that daycare requested was when we did construct the line that we respect nap time. And, uh, <laughs> I just wish that was more common in projects that there was a yeah. designated nap time where we all had to take a break. 
Dave, I think one of the ways around this, or not around it, but just one of the ways that you can help confront this is when you can present options to whatever the, uh, not to the public necessarily, but to whoever the authorizing authority is. So if it's the, if it's a city council, a county, whoever it is to say, we have one version of this project where we have to take this some property from this church, but that's not the only option we have. We have these other two and they're gonna cost 10 times as much but they don't take a church. And so if that's what you want to do, you can do that and at least present, even though that might be a ridiculous option, at least let, you know, the decision makers make that, make that decision on your behalf. Sure. So, okay, here's another question. And this is from me as a relocation agent that I'm, I don't have a PR rep on call and I don't always work for condemning authorities that have a PR person on call for me. So what, what happens if I, or if someone that's in my same position gets that dreaded call from a reporter that wants a statement, or they want me to go on camera and say something about relocation or the benefits or the project, or what do I do? That's terrifying to me. And as somebody that's been misquoted, what's your advice on that? Yeah, that's rough. So I mentioned early in this in this episode that I was in this this training with Hans Bleicher. He's got a, a website called consentbuilding.com. I told him I would mention that if I was going to talk about the, the things I learned there. But I, so they have something that they call the life preserver and it's aptly named whenever you're getting questions, if it's from the public or from reporters, you can often feel like you're out at sea and the waves are crashing and you need something solid that you can hold on to so you don't drown, right? And so they've got this idea of the life preserver. And there's really three things. And I know I can't uh, get into detail on each of these, but, but I think they're really important. So they say, when you're thinking about your project, when you're talking to the public about your project, the first thing that you need to, to be able to articulate is the need for the project. Why are we doing this in the first place? And you can't lose sight of that there should be some significant need. If we don't do this, people aren't gonna be able to drive where they need to drive. If we don't do this, people are gonna be uh, experiencing intermittent power and that's unacceptable, right? If we don't do this, something bad is gonna happen and you need to be able to articulate that problem. Even though no one is necessarily gonna ask you about it, you need to have that in the front of your mind. Why is this project necessary? It's like your elevator pitch for the why of the project. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You need to say, and you need to be real solid on it. And you should ask these questions early in the project. And if people don't have a great answer, then that's an issue, right? Maybe from an engineering perspective, do we really need this project? And if you don't, they're sending you out unarmed. There's these three points. So the first one is being able to articulate the need for the project. The second point is that you uh, are representing the agency that is responsible for addressing that problem. So in other words, if you say, hey, if we don't rebuild these levees, the the city of New Orleans is going to be underwater. But if you're saying that as whatever the state government for Florida, why is this your issue, right? You need to be able to show that, no, it's directly in our charter that we address this kind of problem. And if we don't, Hans Blacker would say, if we don't address it, they should fire us all, right? If we don't address this problem, then we're not doing the very basic duty that we've been put in place to do. So the first one is articulate the problem. The second one is show that you're the agency that is responsible for addressing that problem. And the third thing is that you have some process for addressing it, some process for uh, deciding where this piece of infrastructure goes, for deciding how input gets, gets taken in, And listen, there's no perfect process. So you you don't have to defend that you have the one true process that's better than all others. It just has to be a reasonable process. We have a reasonable process that we go through for this. Now, if you can keep those three things in mind, my challenge to you is that you can answer any question that comes from the public or from the reporter. Now, the reporter may ask silly hypothetical questions, 
Just recently, someone from here in Washington asked me a question. They said, what do I do when people say, what would you do if this project was impacting your property, right? Brian, what would you think if we were trying to build this road across your backyard? What would you think about that, right? It's this kind of hypothetical question. And sure. the real answer is it depends on the details, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, so I can say, I can address it. I can say, it would really depend on the details. But what I hear you saying is you have this challenge, right? With This is your concern about the project and you can address it on some pretty firm footing if you know that it's a necessary project and you're the organization to deal with it. That's gr- those. That's great tips. Can you s- share that website again? Sure. That website again is the, consentbuilding.com. Yes. Consentbuilding.com. Fascinating. Great tips. Sounds like a really good jumping off point to be prepared for those sort of phone calls. I've got a couple of specific questions that would benefit me to know the answer to. <laughs> Are you trying to get free advice? Yes, I, okay, actually, I am. Let's I am go. <laughs> yeah. So I've gotten voicemail messages. Hey, this is Joe Smith from the five o'clock news. I'd like to come to your office at 2 p.m. to interview you about this big inverse condemnation case you have. Is that okay? Do you say, come on over, I've got snacks, let's go. Right, and I get the call about no, 10.30 or 11 a.m. Yeah. What, what, what happens here? What should I? I mean, here's a couple of things I'd be thinking of whenever I get calls like that. One is, do I have the time to talk to this person? And it, <laughs> I mean, if, if it doesn't fit your schedule, that's their deadline, it's not yours. So now generally as, a, as someone who's representing a city, I would, yeah, I would say yes, because we're, we're a public organization and we need to answer questions from the media, but maybe you're in a different position. So at least question if you have to say yes. If you want to, or if, if you think it benefits you, then I would say, I want to really respect your time. I want to be as prepared as possible. So if you can send me some idea of the questions you'd like to ask, I can start preparing them, right? So it's good to have some idea of what they're going to ask you. Fair enough. And, and I've done that before and I have said yes and had to run home and get a tie and and a jacket and come back to the office and sat for it. And I had a pretty good idea of what he was going to ask. And I thought I gave a bang up interview. And then when I turned on the five o'clock news, he had cut out all of the good meat from what I had to say. (laughs) And it was a hatchet job. It was clearly biased for the other side. And so is that what's going to happen to me? Today, Dave, are y'all going to take just the worst parts of what I say? Yeah, yeah. that's all right. This is a, yeah. This is a total expose. So the question is, so I've stopped doing it. And as luck would have it, that was on behalf of a municipality the last time I got one of those calls. And so what I did was I prepared a statement, which I got the client to sign off on and emailed it to them. And the same reporter who had done the hatchet job before, to his credit, took the statement, printed it up and, you know, put it up on the screen on the five o'clock news. I don't know whether I can trust everybody to do that. So I don't know what yes. to do. I think it brings up a couple points, Dave. One of them is that I think this is a pretty normal experience. At this point, if somebody wants to come record you, a lot of times it's just a single individual with a camera. So the reporter is running their own sound and, and video. And they may talk to you for, it might be 30 minutes or something, but ultimately they've got to get that down to a 90 second segment, right? So they're going to cut the bulk of what you say. And I think one of the, uh, one of the, things that that highlights is that you don't have to say much and they can't air anything that you don't say. Right. I mean, Good we're, point. <laughs> we're at least, we're at least to the point where they're not going to, going to fake something, right. And have you saying something you didn't say. So if you can really stick to a script, for instance, that, that life preserver, those three points, if you can just kind of keep repeating that and then you can know anything that they play of what I'm saying is going to be, is going to be fine. I'm going to be happy to see that on the news at night. 
and further, I'll say that a lot of times this runs against normal human nature because the, it almost, I remember once going to buy a car and at a dealership, and when it came time to buy the extras, the warranty and the financing, all that, I kept saying, no, I just don't want any of that, right? I just want to buy the car and go. And the guy kept asking, acting like he was disappointed in me. He was you know, kind of <laughs> shaking his head, oh, oh, Brian, I, I hate to see you doing this, right? He was trying to play on these emotions, and you, it just kind of took some fortitude to, to push past it and say, no, I, I know what I'm here to do. In the same way, reporters will... They're good at making you feel like you're being unreasonable. You're not answering a clear question. But if the answer to that clear question is one that you don't want to see on the news at night, just stick to your script, stick to your three points, say them in different ways. But that's no, this is what I have to say, because ultimately you're not communicating with that reporter. That reporter is not your audience. The audience of that news channel is your audience. That is great advice. And you could go through this whole spiel about how I'm here to take care of the the landowner and I'm a good steward of taxpayer dollars and I'm just doing my job. And then they could just play, I'm just doing my job. And then you sound like a complete. Exactly. So, so let's switch over. And we talked about if it was a reporter from the evening news, but what if it's a newspaper reporter? Wait, are there any of those left anymore? There might well, be one or two. Do you, are you talking about like Facebook? No, <laughs> no, not somebody wanting to update their Facebook page, but Fair. a newspaper reporter, occasionally they will contact me and say, Hey, I want to get some statements from you about the XYZ project. And I've had such bad experiences in the past that mm. I won't talk on the telephone to a newspaper reporter on the record. I will not do it. Yeah, I, th I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's fair, again, to, to request those questions in writing and to say, I'm going to submit my answers in writing. And then there's a, a very clear record. I think that's just fine to do. It may be frustrating for that reporter. So if your goal is to build a long-term positive working relationship with a specific reporter, maybe that's not what you want to do. But if that's not the case, I think you're certainly well within your rights to say, I'll either answer the questions in writing or direct you to someone else. That's great advice. Hey, do you hear that music? Brian, guess what? That music means that it is time for cross-examination with Dave. Now, All you right. have not played this before, but here's how it works. Dave is going to ask you five Rapid fire questions, which you must answer in one sentence or less, unless you don't, and then that's fine too. Are you ready? I think so. Let's do it. All right. Wait, did you say one sentence or less? Yeah, but we're, we're pretty lax on the rules. But how am I going to answer it in less than a sentence? It, what if it's just yes? You sentence can fragment. grunt. You can you grunt. Can grunt. You can just roll your eyes. I mean, whatever. I was being pedantic. Please continue. Okay. <laughs> Brian, are you ready to go? Yes. Number one, when you pulled that handgun on Kristen Bennett, were you planning on killing her or just wounding her? <laughs> That's, I'd like to hear the next question, please. <laughs> okay. Question number two. Brian, how much do you actually love Billy Squire? I don't know what that is. That's right. He doesn't know what that is because most people don't. Kristen, hush. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number three, do you have any aspirations of advancing above your current position as minister of propaganda? <laughs> <laughs> I do not. <laughs> okay. All right. Number four, this is true or false. So you have a 50% chance of getting this one correct. 
True or false? No one can name more than two songs of any band from the 1990s, and you can't say false. Untrue. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's good. He's good. He's good. He's He's good. good. All right. All right. Final question, Brian. Are you ready? I'm ready. When you are hired to manage public relations on an infrastructure project, have you ever just gotten right in somebody's face and yelled, calm down? Not yet. Don't you think that would be helpful? I think that, yeah. One of the things that inevitably calms people down is when you tell them to calm down. Especially it never if, you, fails. if you yell it like in their yeah. face. Yeah, that really calms me down. So I know that was like not a serious question, but we I remember we did have a, a public meeting one time where we were all there to talk to members of the public. And this one guy came in with a bullhorn shouting at my boss. And it was awkward because we're like, we're here to talk to you. And so finally he just meekly put it down and kept talking to us. You did a great job. This has been Cross-Examination with Dave. All right. Those were tough questions, Brian, and I appreciate your patience. You did a great job. We're going to move on into another area. Yeah. We want to talk about what happens when you get these unsubstantiated claims. What do you, that whole phenomenon of, of, of landowners or other people, members of the public coming at you with these unsubstantiated claims? What do we do with that? And, and before you answer that, let's have Brian explain to our listeners what this means and how it works. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe an example would be helpful here. I was, I think I mentioned I just recently gave a training on media and public relations for these infrastructure projects. And so I, I found this article that was in a local publication and it had to do with a project that was, that was being considered a few years ago. The scene is that there was someone who was, who the paper said was an activist against the project. And so they showed up at a permitting agency and I'm going to quote from the paper now, which was quoting this person. And so they said, I'm here to tell you on behalf of the 25,000 Native Americans that live in this area that this facility is a bad idea with broad public opposition. So first of all, and there's a little bit more that I'll say, but there's there's a claim here that they're speaking on behalf of 25,000 Native Americans in the area. They're speaking for them and saying this project's a bad idea with broad public opposition. So that's a claim already. So we have one claim so far. The person goes on to say, these are our very lives and homes at risk. Putting lives and homes at risk is no small thing. So that's a, a second claim. And then they go on to say, we must think of how we can make our community better for future generations and not how we can further pollute our community. Did you catch that, Kristen? We should think about how to make our community better rather than <laughs> polluting it. Why do you prefer pollution to improvement, Kristen? That's a weird right. position to take. <laughs> and it kind of goes on like that, but they say, for these reasons, for your children, for our children, for water to drink and for air to breathe, the agency must do what is right and deny the permit, right? So this is the quote that was, so if you're representing this project, you got to hear this quote presented at the meeting, and then you got to see it printed by this reporter I'll say that with I wasn't at the meeting. I had nothing to do with the project. But in reading the article, there's a lot of assertions that are made in this quote, and none of them are even questioned in the article, right? No one attempts to substantiate these claims. So I'd say these are almost the definition of unsubstantiated claims. For your children, for our children, for water to drink and air to breathe, water and air, these are really basic needs. Think of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs again. These are right there at the bottom, water and air. So the question is, 
gosh, if you're representing this project and you've just heard before the permitting authority, someone say, I'm speaking for everyone when I say we're not going to have air and water if you do this project. (laughs) How are you supposed to respond to that? But I'll say, gosh, one of the reasons that uh, Life Preserver I mentioned before is helpful is that I think the wor- one of the worst things that can happen to you if you're representing a project is to get drawn into this fight and to answer in kind, to say, they're going to say that, I'm going to badmouth them, I'm going to really get drawn into the fight. It, nothing good comes from that. Your opponent in a situation like this can say a lot of unsubstantiated claims. They can be really dramatic. You have to be relentlessly professional, articulate, and truthful in all of your responses, right? And so that's, again, that's something that 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 life preserver can help you with. If you can just remember, hey, here's why we're doing this project. We're the people that need to do it, and we have a process for doing so. So, yeah, we see these people, whether they are landowners or public interest groups or whatever, that come with these, like, grandiose claims and these stances, and they're loud and they have bullhorns, and you can't, I can't, representing the contending authority, get out all our bullhorn and have these equally grandiose statements back at them screaming through a bullhorn. Calm down. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So that's that's tricky. It is. I'll say this. It's always, I think, helpful to have sympathy with the people that you, with whom you are disagreeing. And so, so one thing to consider here is that the person that's speaking to this permitting authority probably has less technical information about the project than you do if you're representing the project. And they probably have less technical information uh, about the permit process than you do. So in that way, they have some disadvantages. You're part of the system if you're representing this project. And you know that this permitting authority probably doesn't have the, their charter probably doesn't tell them to consider some of these grand notions that are being presented to them, right? There's probably a narrow set of definitions that they're working under. Certainly, if you're representing someone from a legal point of view. So if you're responding to a claim like this, either in the media or in one of these public hearings, I think you just want to stick to the the real facts of what you can say decisively, and you don't need to answer each of these unsubstantiated claims. I also think you want to be careful not to position yourself against them. You can say, I agree with them. The things they brought up are really important. Here's what I know about the project. Here's what I want to be able to stick to those facts. Am I misremembering? I think you had a quote about these grand statements that you shared with me before. I, I think I said something like this already, but I'll say it again. So if you're representing a project, you have to be relentlessly accurate, patient, and professional, and your opponents don't. That's not fair at all. It's not fair at all. So, Brian, as you can tell, this has been an, a fishing expedition by me to solicit <laughs> advice from you for free. I love it. To help my practice. So, don't, next, don't say that out loud. <laughs> next question. <laughs> yeah, leave that in, Cody. You ne- said the quiet part loud, Dave. <laughs> next question elected officials. And what do we do when they become involved? Because think about it. If it's a municipality or a public agency who is responsible for the project and there's a landowner who's upset, what do they do? They call their public representative. It might be their local member of the legislature. It might be their local congressman, whomever. And they give them an earful, which is, in my experience, not always objective and unbiased. And then the legislator or public official feels the need to, air quotes, you can see this, but the listeners can't see it, do something. So what do we do when public officials become involved? 
Yeah, it, it is tricky and it is probably going to make your job more difficult. Although I don't think it changes the job that you're doing or the strategy that you bring to it. It's, at certain points, VIPs get involved, right? And it could be an elected official. It could even be a celebrity of, of some kind. And yeah, that makes things more difficult. Again, I think you, you want to have that recognition that this could bring more attention to your project. I guess I would say that I don't think that those individuals need special consideration or any change in your process because that's what you have what you have to, to go back to with your with your life preserver is well this project is needed isn't it and it still is even if a public official is involved we're still the agency to do it right unless somehow that a politician that's gotten involved can change our charter we're still the agency to, to take care of it and we still have a process i don't think the governor getting involved should change your process you've still got a process to go through and ultimately i, I don't think any of the three of us on this call are final decision makers for citing considerations or or that kind of thing for these oh, projects no. <laughs> so we're, so we're just ushering everyone through the process and i think unless we have somehow lost the script ourselves and have become advocates for a particular decision or for a particular site that we think is the best one, then it should be easy enough, although it may create more work by having one of these VIPs involved. I think we still just stick with our process and stick to the the facts of the, the project we're working on. That's why I love this concept of the life preserver. Like you stick with that. We're doing it's, what we're it's doing. Sol- it's solid ground you can stand on. You can just be yep. steadfast in those answers and that's the answer. <laughs> Kristen, often I have thought of my job in that way of I'm standing on this very solid ground of the defense for this project. And the job of any public opponent is to push me off this ground. So I just have to stay. I just kind of got to keep my center of gravity low and stand my ground. That's all that I can do. If If they push me off and now I'm defending something weird, then I've lost Yeah, but if you stick with it's so liberating. You have your you got your life preserver, you know what you're doing. That's it. That's it. That's great. Great advice. Hey, Brian. Yes. It's time for another over under push. Do you think you can handle one more little game with us? I'm scared because I think I have a pretty good record so far and I don't want to tarnish it. I think you're going to be okay on this one because from what I recall about you, you are a bit of a coffee. I'm going to say coffee snob. You're a coffee snob. Yes. It's true. Yep. Okay. So we're going to do an over under push all relating to coffee. Okay. Okay. Uh, coffee is under... That's not the question. Oh, sorry. No, okay. no, we're not there yet. Do you remember the rules of over-under push? I'm remembering, yes. Okay. Here are your three items having to do with coffee. Don't Please don't react until we're through the list. <laughs> Number one, pumpkin spice latte. Oh. Shush. Huh. I said no, no reacting oh, sorry, yet. sorry, sorry. You're jumping the gun. Continue. Number Continue. two, Starbucks. And number three... Keurigs or similar coffee making devices that have pods. Okay. I knew you were going to react on that PSL. I knew it. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the PSL, the pumpkin spice latte. What say ye? Okay. I'm going to say this is a strong push. They are rated exactly where they should be. Um, what? That people that enjoy them should continue enjoying them, and people that don't shouldn't try to talk themselves into it. But it's, I think it's, you know, Dave is as, hitting his head against the microphone. Dave, stop. <laughs> to me, it's a, it's an artifact of seasonality, right? It's, it's fall. If you want to celebrate that with something that that tastes like Thanksgiving, that's great. It's silly that, <laughs> in, like, 
kids in Waco are, are drinking these things when it's 95 degrees outside. But that aside, I, I'm just happy for people to enjoy them. Well, you're, this is the first time you've actually had a completely wrong answer. Pumpkin spice oh. latte is entirely overrated. Okay, but I appreciate okay. your diplomacy in saying that if you enjoy it, you should. I bet you don't ever go to Starbucks and get a pumpkin spice latte. I'm just, I'm betting that's not your game. You would think so. And you'd mostly be right, but I have a 13-year-old daughter and she wanted to try them. So last fall, I, I did walk into a Starbucks with her and well, get her one. Listen, with daughters, everything goes. You're off the yeah. hook for that. That's totally fine. Okay. Starbucks. I'm here in Washington and it's a local company. What to say about Starbucks? It's well, you're Washington. there in Washington and Pearl Jam's a local band too. Yeah. Don't Hello. forget that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kristen, it's over. It's overrated. But here's yes. my problem. I can't get a I can't get a cup of drip coffee from Starbucks and drink it black and enjoy it. And if you can't just make a cup of black coffee that's then, uh, palatable. What are you doing? Hey, guess what? Redemption. That's correct. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Number three, the Keurig or Keurig type coffee making machines with pods. Well, I here, if I understand them in this way, then they're a push. I don't like them. I don't like the aesthetics of the whole thing. I don't like the amount of garbage that it generates. I don't think the coffee is all that good. But if it's a replacement for the previous generation's pot of coffee that sits on a burner all day, that office coffee that's been sitting on a burner all day, th then it is probably flavor-wise a significant upgrade from that. And so to me, it's somewhere between overrated and a push. I think you nailed that one. I yeah. So was... you're two out of three. So I would say all together today, you've got like a 99 score. That's pretty good. But yeah. That's really good. Congratulations, Brian. Leaves room for improvement. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so we've got one more topic we want to cover today, and I'm not sure where I fall on this one. The conventional wisdom is, and almost everybody does it, hey, we've got a project coming up, and frequently this is mandated by law. Let's have a public hearing. Yeah. Oh, boy. Let's get everybody together and let them air their grievances. Can we get a microphone and let everybody talk into a it? Bullhorn, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> so public hearings, really a good idea or not? Is this an over-under yeah. push? <laughs> yeah, that it should have been. <laughs> right. It, yeah, and I would definitely give them an over. They're overrated. Correct. But I'll have a couple comments on this. One is that I think it is good to involve people, right? I mean, that, and, and involve people early. Involve people before you have all of your plans figured out. Involve them when there's still, still decisions to make. So I'm in favor of involving the public, certainly, and getting their, their uh, input early. And as you said, sometimes public hearings are required by statute. And there's even some details about how long everybody has to talk. And so that's just what you need to do. And of course, you want to go through your process on that. I think perhaps because they're required by statute, it's a tool that a lot of people are familiar with. And you often reach for the tool that you're familiar with. So when people say, we need to talk to the public, let's have a public hearing. But I think there's much better ways to do this. Do you remember when you were a kid and you would play that game where the floor is lava? And you'd pretend the floor is uh, yes. Remember that? Yes. No. Jump from couch a, to couch. My kids love the floor is lava. Texas game. No, it's, I'm sorry you missed out on this. It's great fun. Yeah. Okay. It's, listen, let's, well, let's explain it. So I could literally go into my house today and to my two daughters be like, the floor is lava. And immediately they have three seconds to get their feet off of the floor. They're going to burn up in lava. So you like jump up on whatever piece of furniture is available. It's hysterical. 
Have I got I didn't that know right? anyone didn't know about the Flores yeah, drama. I'm, like, where have you been? I've never heard of such. It must be a 90s thing with all your 90s Were you bands. ever a child? Then? No, it's so sad. <laughs> Not in the 1990s, wasn't <laughs> You guys are playing so, the Flores Lava, and I'm trying cases. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I bring up the game, the Flores Lava, is I think it's an apt description of a lot of public hearings. You're creating a floor, right? When there's a presentation, the presenter has the floor. Now we're going to open up the floor to the public, and the public can come up, and, and now they have the floor. So that means that everybody that wants to... And here's a weird phenomenon. If you get a group of people together, there's some percentage of that group, 5%, something like that, that really wants to speak to the rest of the group. They really want to raise their hand and they want their voice to be heard. Most of us are like, if I'm in a big group, I that's the last thing I want is to address this group. But some people want to. So when you, in a public hearing situation, you create a floor and now people get to address the whole audience and they get to say whatever they want. And a lot of times, whoever's officiating that meeting can't even directly answer the charges that are being made. And so they can say whatever kind of crazy stuff they want and it goes unanswered. It's not great. Another way to do this, that Krista and I uh, did this in, in the city we were working for, is that you can have a public open house meeting and there doesn't have to be a presentation. Take whatever your PowerPoint would have said and make giant posters out of each slide and put those around the building. Have a a set number of hours that this meeting is going to be open, but it's come and go. You can come at any time. You're not going to miss your presentation. For one thing, this is more really a more equitable way to structure a meeting because people who have different work schedules, who have different childcare schedules can come in for as long as time allows. Their kids don't have to sit there quietly through a presentation or something like that. So it's, I think it gets more people involved anyway. But it also decentralizes the thing where now there's not a floor. You can come talk to me as an individual directly. And, and you're not having to address the whole crowd. We had one of these individuals who loved to address the whole crowd and, and tell us what he thought of every project. <laughs> and he actually got on to us about this new format of our meetings and said, now everybody else doesn't get to hear what I have to say. And we're like, Precisely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is a feature and not a bug, sir. We're glad that it works that way. So I love the idea of having meetings, having them early, including the public. But if you can avoid having a public hearing, you should because why, Kristen? Because the is floor is lava. Brian, that, lava. the floor is made of lava. And I was involved in some of those meetings. And it was fantastic because I came as the relocation expert. And I kind of went over in my corner with my little map of the project and my little whiteboard. And if you encountered somebody that said, I think this is going to impact my house and I'm going to have to move, you'd go, oh, you should go talk to Kristen. And I could yeah. really kind of start to build a rapport with those people who were going to be involved and nip that misinformation in the bud like, from the get-go. So I thought that was a fantastic opportunity for me as the relocation person to start to build that rapport and cut off some of that misinformation. And I thought it was a really good way to allay some of the landowners and the displacees' fears about what was going to be happening in the timeline and the dollar signs and all that. Absolutely. And just by the way, most normal residents that are attending a meeting like that want to know how they're going to be impacted directly anyway. They don't really right. need to hear about the history of electrification or whatever was in your presentation, right? They just want to know, I live here, am I going to be affected? And how? Yeah. So these meetings allow for that more. Yeah, and then we can scream in their faces individually. Calm down. Yeah, exactly. Brian, this has been a great conversation. We've enjoyed having you on. Appreciate your insights and go ahead and send me a bill for the personal consult. Yeah, there's no such Thanks, thing Dave. as free advice for Dave. You should definitely invoice him. I'll put calm down in the memo line. Perfect. Very good, very good. <laughs> Brian, thanks for coming on. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Brian. Thank you both. The floor is lava. Calm down!